Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Today, we're going to focus on an economic question that could have important human and political consequences. Why are we seeing spiking inflation rates, and how long will they last? So last week's data from the Department of Labor showed that consumer prices rose 5.5% between June of 2020 and June of this year. That's well above the 2% inflation rate that the Federal Reserve targets, and it's the highest level of inflation we've seen since 2008. According to a recent Marist poll, rising prices is now Americans' leading economic worry. 26% said as much. Wages and unemployment came in second and third. Many economists predicted a period of increased inflation as COVID restrictions were lifted, but whether it persists could shape political debates heading into the midterms. It could also shape perceptions of and support for Biden's agenda. Republicans point to the $2 trillion American Rescue Plan as exacerbating inflation and say that the more than $4 trillion in additional proposed spending would make things worse. So here with me to sort out what is going on with inflation is economics professor at the George Washington University, Tara Sinclair. She's also a senior fellow at Indeed. Welcome back to the podcast, Tara. Thanks, Galen. Great to be back. It's great to have you. So first things first, the last time we talked on this podcast, it was March 20th of 2020. I actually went back and looked it up. It feels like a lifetime ago. And honestly, may we never relive those days. But back then, we were talking about the possibility of an economic catastrophe. What has happened to the economy since then? Well, in many ways, we did experience the economic catastrophe in all of its horrific gore. We saw the worst unemployment claims we've ever imagined by many millions more than we'd ever seen before. We saw huge drops in GDP, in employment. But on the other hand, it was surprisingly short. The NBER just told us that the recession ended, which means bottomed out, in April of 2020. And since then, we've seen a surprisingly swift recovery. A lot of economists really predicted that things would be a much greater slog than they've been. And so on that front, there there is some good news. We still have a, a ways to go, but the economic disaster now is is already somewhat in the rearview mirror. Okay, so now the focus has turned a bit more to inflation. There's still some focus on unemployment numbers, but inflation is what we're hearing a lot about. So how big of a deal is 5.4% inflation? Well, we have to take that in context. So we have to remember that that's being compared to a surprisingly low number a year ago. And so 5.4%, if it was off of previous years having gained 2% or more, really we might want to think about it more as being something on the order of about 3% gain if we think about it in the context of where we're coming from. However, that doesn't mean that's a good number. It's still a surprisingly high number. So it's not just that it's a high number, but it's even higher than what people were expecting. For example, people at the Federal Reserve who are tracking inflation very carefully. And so I think what we're really concerned about is the surprisingly high number that we're seeing. And getting back to basics here, you're an economics professor. I'm not an economist. I am curious about this stuff myself. What is the problem with inflation generally? When we say that's a concerningly high number, what are we concerned about? The first thing to remember with inflation is that it is actually 
about prices across the board, where one of the things that a lot of people don't think of as a price is their wages. But from the employer's perspective, that is the cost of labor. And so when we think about inflation, we actually are measuring both prices of goods and services, but also the price of labor and wages. And so in one sense, we might think that as long as wages are going up as well as prices, that there's really not a big concern there. But it's still the case that a lot of contracts are in nominal terms, so that particularly if prices go up in an unanticipated way, if we're surprised by them and we don't make appropriate contracts, then there's going to be winners and losers. And furthermore, economic research suggests that when we start seeing really pretty rapid rates of inflation, like above 4% per year, then we start to be really seeing different economic impacts, and it really does seem to affect our economy's ability to perform at its best. So right now, are wages or prices rising faster? Typically, wages do rise faster than prices on average because we do see real wage gains. The economy has become more and more productive over time, and some of that has been returned to the workers so that people have a better standard of living now than people in the past. So that's the long historical pattern. At the moment, it is true that although we are seeing some increases in wages, we have seen faster increases in prices. And so that has people concerned. I've heard as inflation has entered the fore of economic analysis, I've seen some people make the argument that, well, you know, some periods of higher inflation can be good because there are always winners and losers depending on which economic phenomena we're experiencing and debtors win out during periods of inflation and creditors lose, but creditors have been doing pretty well. So some period of high inflation isn't that bad. Is that armchair analysis or is that a rigorous economic viewpoint? There is a lot of debate amongst economists about exactly what the right level of inflation should be. But I think there's a pretty strong consensus that it shouldn't be volatile. And that's really one of the key things that central banks around the world have focused on is really keeping prices stable. And so the way that they often define prices being stable is actually the rate of growth being pretty consistent. And so this idea of swapping off between winners and and losers, that's actually potentially damaging for the economy because then people can't plan. And planning is what allows people to invest, and investing is what really helps us grow our economy in the very long run. So the idea that a slightly higher rate of inflation might be okay either in this particular time or just in general, that is something that has come up in discussions quite a bit, perhaps in part as a catch-up for lower rates of inflation, not just during the pandemic, but also we had many years of lower rates of inflation before we came into the pandemic. Uh, This was a conversation we were having before the COVID recession was this idea that the Fed was consistently missing their inflation target by being too low. And so we might want to think about them having a higher rate of inflation for a relatively sustained period of time to kind of average out. But we don't want to do it in a really big seesaw fashion. Got it. And so the people who might argue that, what are they saying the Fed should target? There's many different metrics that people have talked about. The really common one that's being talked about right now is just an average inflation target. And that's what the Fed has really come out and advocated themselves is that rather than thinking about 
2% being more of a ceiling, that it really should be the average of the inflation experience over several years. And so if they're low from before, then not only should they get up to 2% quickly, they might run a little bit above 2% for some period of time to kind of offset it. But literally that vague language of for some period of time is the level of language that we're hearing communicated from decision makers. It's not completely clear exactly what window would be the appropriate window to look for. And when we do get to a situation where prices are rising faster than wages, what is the personal experience of that? Like people who are participating in the economy What are the challenges when inflation does spike quickly? So as you noted, there are going to be winners and losers to this. And that's really a a big concern is that people who hold a lot of their assets in, for example, checking or savings accounts that don't pay much in the way of interest and don't offset for inflation, those accounts are going to lose purchasing power. And so that's a really big concern for those groups. Also, for people who don't have wage contracts that adjust for inflation, that this might be an opportunity for employers to implicitly lower the pay of of some workers. But then on the other hand, people who own assets that are protecting them from inflation may see big gains. We're already seeing a boom in the housing market, for example, and that's an area where if you get a nominal mortgage, and then interest rates go up quite a bit, value of your home goes up quite a bit, but you're already locked into a you know a nice low rate 30-year mortgage, you might win out in that case. Okay. So I think we've set the table a little bit for what is maybe more of the political question here. Why are we seeing the high level of inflation that we're seeing today? Again, this is one of those things that's going to be debated amongst economists for many years to come. This is going to be a period that's going to be studied similar to the period of the 1970s, similar to other economic periods where there was really dramatic changes in economic figures. It's going to give fodder for lots of research. But really what people are concerned about and what connects to the politics is that one of the reasons why the economy seems to be so much better now than what a lot of economists were expecting is we got a lot more fiscal stimulus than a lot of economists were initially expecting. And the concern is that that fiscal stimulus may have been too much uh, in the sense that it might be stimulating demand beyond what our economy can sustainably produce. And so we've got a lot of money chasing too little supply of goods and services. When you try to parse through how much of this is a result of naturally pent up demand because economies were shuttered to a large extent for about a year versus excess money supply injected into the economy from those COVID relief packages, I guess, which bears the brunt of the responsibility? I think that's something we don't know yet. There are definitely people with strong views on either side, but it's going to take more study and more experience later to really tease that out. And we're going to have to see what the pattern of inflation is for the longer term, because right now we're predicting what's going to happen next with inflation. And you know the groups that think that there was too much stimulus, perhaps from the fiscal side, perhaps from the monetary side, perhaps from both Those groups, of course, are predicting that we're going to see a permanent rise in inflation. Other groups who are seeing that the fiscal and monetary stimulus was appropriate, but that it's just a 
temporary mismatch between the current amounts of demand and the still barriers for supply to match that, those groups are going to predict that this is just a temporary bump in inflation. Yeah. And so I think looking ahead to how Republicans and Democrats debate the economy's performance in 2022, that is the question. Is this a blip that lasts for the summer or for 2021, but we return to expected or desired levels of inflation in 2022? Or is, you know, is this protracted? What are the different theories for what will happen? And if you have a guess, what do you think will happen? Sure. Well, one way that I was thinking about kind of setting out these theories is actually to kind of put them in historical analogy. So one of the big concerns is that we're going to have a period that looks like the 1970s stagflation all over again. And basically, in that time, the idea was that we overestimated how strong the economy could be, and it put too much stimulus in the economy, and therefore ended up seeing both high inflation and high unemployment. So that's one analogy that people are are really concerned about and one that comes up quite often. Another one, one that's, I think, closer to my own views, is more of the World War II analogy. The idea that there were a whole lot of shifts in supply and demand. And of course, there were additional expenditures that came onto the economy that the government had to fund. And there was uh, high inflation during that time and shortly after, but then inflation dropped off quite dramatically after that, and actually to the point where we actually then saw a recession. And so that's another potential risk. And this is something we're actually seeing from the bond markets as well. There's a concern that actually what will happen is we'll see this high inflation and that the Federal Reserve will fight that inflation too quickly and too heartily such that we end up with another recession or potentially protracted slow growth when we could have had a stronger economy if they'd stayed off the monetary breaks just a little bit longer. So I think those are kind of the two main analogies. But I think there's a a couple other aspects to kind of keep in mind when we're thinking about what's going to happen next. And I think these are lessons that the Federal Reserve particularly is, is really keeping in mind in these times. And one is the productivity boom in the 1990s. So at that time, there was really this sense that the economy was getting quite hot and maybe inflation was on the way. And the Fed was, you know, under Greenspan, really holding back on tapping the brakes because Greenspan had a sense that, no, 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 this is actually productivity gains and productivity gains can grow the economy without seeing higher inflation. If we can produce more things, then even if demand rises along with that production, we can still not see big price gains in the way we would if we had just demand rising without supply also being able to rise to meet it. And so that's another possible scenario is we've had a whole bunch of investment in new skills and new technologies that has happened during this time. And if these are the sorts of things that can make us more productive in the longer term, then we may actually see a productivity boom out of this. And that might be another reason to hold back on slowing the economy too quickly in response to a a temporary bump up in inflation. And then the, the last lesson, and I think this is the one that a lot of people have been keeping in mind, is the slow recovery out of the Great Recession and how, in particular, it seems like maybe the Fed raised rates too quickly and didn't 
fully absorb all of the potential labor market participants that they could have allowed to come into the economy. And that really, with a little bit more stimulus, perhaps on the fiscal side, we could have seen a more robust recovery for a broader population much quicker rather than waiting till it slowly improved all the way until just before the pandemic recession hit. So I think those are like kind of four scenarios and four things that we're keeping in mind when we're thinking about what is going to happen going forward. But there is this debate about the political side versus the Federal Reserve side. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You mentioned some of the lessons that economists are looking at when trying to assess where we are in this moment of spiking inflation, but we're not really sure what's going to happen next. Is there any sort of consensus amongst economists in terms of which lessons are the best to draw on or whether this actually looks more like the 1970s or the post-war era? I think there really are two camps, and I think that they are the 1970s versus post-war camps is, is broadly the way to think about it. And there are those that are really concerned about what has now been termed secular stagnation, which is this idea that productivity may just not grow very quickly. We may not be able to bring supply up very much over the next several years. And if we can't bring supply up very much, then if we're stimulating demand like crazy, there won't be anywhere for that demand to go except to push up prices. So that's that camp's concern. And it's really about their assessment of how much we can grow supply over the next several years. The other camp is really looking at all of the different relative shifts that are happening right now and are really assessing that even if we can't raise supply by very much, that demand may still have some room 
to grow, that there's still a large enough gap between supply and demand that we may even still need further stimulus or at least targeted policies to bring all groups up back to their strongest economic performance that they can bring. You mentioned that there's two pieces of the puzzle here, one being the political side and the other being the Fed. I think for economists, obviously, that separation and the Fed being apolitical is very important, but probably not a big part of how people think about the economy, because oftentimes we know that in politics, people blame the incumbent. So how should we think about the divide between what is political and what is in the Fed's domain? Ideally, we would keep all of the inflation responsibility in the Fed's hands and all of the other concerns, particularly about distribution of income and of wealth, all of that stuff that should really have a political component in the fiscal hands. Now, of course, there's blurring both in terms of expectations and blame. But when we really think about what's the current structure, the Fed is responsible for their dual mandate of maximum employment and stable prices or low inflation. And they have in the past had a really good track record of being able to maintain low inflation, but sometimes at the cost of the highest employment possible. So in general, what we worry about is that if the economy is running hot, they may tap the brakes too hard and we may see some negative economic impact from that. And that's really my my concern on the Fed's perspective. And so from the political side, the idea is that maybe we don't want so much fiscal stimulus coming into the economy that puts the Fed in that position where they have to decide that they have to tap on the brakes. I think that's really the relative responsibilities. What I understand the point of a kind of apolitical Federal Reserve to be is that politicians will be incentivized to overheat the economy in the short term to win elections if the monetary policy is within the political realm. And so we try to make that apolitical so that you don't see like rampant inflation just because politicians want to win elections. Is, though, the Federal Reserve persuaded by public opinion in some ways or political pressure? Obviously, there's been different historical scenarios where there's been different amounts of pressure on the Fed, but they've really been a remarkably independent central bank. And the Fed has been able to act in more of a long-run interest of the economy, which is, I think, the right way to think about it. It's not that they are the party poopers, but rather they're more like the parents in that sense. Of, you know, They're not taking the punch bowl away because they just want to make the party less fun. It's because they are thinking about the long-run health of the economy, and we all need to go get a good night's sleep. So <laughs> I think that's their goals, their responsibilities. And typically, the people who are the decision makers for the Fed have been known to be relatively inflation diverse. That's who's been appointed. And that's how they have thought about their own personal legacies. One interesting thing is that currently, a lot of people describe the current Federal Reserve Board in particular as being much more on the dovish side than what we've seen before, meaning that they are less concerned about inflation and much more concerned about reaching full employment. But I still think given the constant discussion about inflation, they're not going to miss 
if inflation gets too high and they do have the tools to bring it back under control. So let's talk about the political side now, which is the level of stimulus spending or wealth redistribution. I am curious here, the Republican critique has been that the economy may have been overstimulated with the $2 trillion American Rescue Plan, and they're sending warning signs about the proposed additional $4 trillion in both hard infrastructure spending, social programs, healthcare spending, things like that. So how does that work? in terms of if the government wants to spend a bunch of money on poverty alleviation and supporting the working class, is that by definition going to spark some level of inflation? How do you avoid overheating the economy if you do want to alleviate poverty? I think the right way to think about this is thinking about what's going to happen to aggregate demand. That's the classic economist concept. And here I think it makes a lot of sense. So if we're stimulating one part of the economy, but maybe discouraging demand from some other area so that we can balance things out, then we won't overheat the economy and we won't put the Fed in a position where they have to tap on the brakes and raise interest rates. So to alleviate poverty, for example, we can't just borrow a bunch of money and aim at that without thinking about where's the money coming from, But with a lot of these plans, so infrastructure, for example, one thing that makes infrastructure just the Goldilocks of spending plans is that the idea is that it's increasing both supply and demand. So even though it might be somewhat staggered, it might stimulate demand a little bit before supply for thinking about what that's going to do to prices. If we're able to produce more things or produce things more effectively, then raising demand as well is not going to translate into price pressures in the same way as if we have the same amounts of goods and services and we just have more money chasing it. When, from economist perspective, does stimulus spending or government spending need to be offset by pay-fors and when does it not need to be, right? We saw during the heat of the crisis that extra spending wasn't paid for, including the American Rescue Plan with tax increases. Now we're seeing that the infrastructure spending, social healthcare programs, things like that, they're proposing increasing taxes on the wealthy in order to pay for them. How do economists think about, like, is there some stimulus spending that's okay to not be paid for and other that must be paid for? In general, somehow everything is going to get paid for in some way. But there is something different about what the state of the economy is for thinking about what happens with stimulus. So if the economy is roaring on all cylinders so that we've already got enough demand for as much as we can produce, then any additional spending is going to just end up pushing into prices, as I mentioned before. And sometimes the government may want to try and and do that for some specific spending target, but in general, that should be paid for in some way because it's not going to result in greater production. So basically, like you might think that you're helping out people by increasing the spending money they have, but really you're also just going to increase prices the same amount and it's all a wash. Exactly, exactly. There are two special times in our economy. One is the one that I already mentioned. If, if the kind of spending that we're talking about also raises supply and the associated increase in demand those can come together and just keep prices the same. So if the government spends money 
on things that make us better able to produce, for example, you know, investing in roads, bridges, or education, you know, those sorts of things, then the increased demand might not need to be separately paid for because we can use that demand to buy the new stuff that's coming in the economy. And then that'll create greater wealth for the economy and a larger tax base, same tax rate to pay it off in the future. But then the special economic conditions that we found ourselves in, in the pandemic, we found ourselves in that in the global financial crisis, in the Great Recession, those sorts of time periods we clearly have demand so far below what our potential capacity to produce is that that's another time when it might make sense to spend without having a clear plan for how you're going to pay for that because that's going to stimulate the economy, bring our economic output closer to our potential, and with that greater health of the economy, again, we'll have the larger tax base same tax rate. And so this might help pay for the spending. So I want to talk about how Americans are experiencing all of this. How do they come to conclusions about the health of the economy and their own personal prospects? So this is really interesting. There's been a lot of very cool research on this topic recently, because one of the things that we see is if we survey households and consumers they consistently estimate that inflation is higher than what is reported from the government. So you might wonder, where is this mismatch coming from? And then you ask people, like, do you not believe the government statistics? And a lot of times it's not that they don't believe the numbers coming out of the government. They just don't know what they are. What they do know is the prices that they're seeing for goods that they frequently buy. And one of the concerns about that is that the goods that people frequently buy are things like popular grocery store items, and then gas, and these sorts of things that we often strip out of inflation measures because they're incredibly volatile. And yet that does seem to be the information that people use when they're making their own expectations of what's happening with prices. And in particular, the human mind tends to fixate more when prices go up than when prices go down, and that tends to push up their estimation of what's happening with prices overall is that they won't remember that they got a sale last week on milk. They just remember that the price this week was quite a bit higher and therefore they feel like, oh, prices went up when actually it just went from sale back to regular price, which was the price that they were paying before. And, you know, of course, we see a lot of volatility in gas prices as well. And people do tend to fixate on when it's been expensive and not recognizing when it's been cheaper. I mentioned a Marist poll at the top showing that rising prices is Americans' leading economic worry. In the data that you look at relative to historical trends, how worried are Americans about inflation? Well, it's interesting because there is a whole generation of people, the millennials, that have spent their entire working lives in a period where they really haven't seen much in the way of inflation at all. So it is interesting to suddenly have this big concern about rising prices. And, you know, it's kind of a new experience for this very large group of working adults. The, now the, the majority of our workforce is in that age group. And so this is a new thing to be worried about. And I think perhaps particularly because it is new, but it's something that they've heard stories about from the past, 
that it can be very unsettling. But even in very low inflation times in the past, prices has come up as something that people are concerned about. And I think oftentimes when people say they're concerned about rising prices, it's not necessarily that they're worried so much about rising just prices themselves, but that they're concerned about their earnings and potentially also their assets and how they are keeping up. And are they definitely seeing improving living standards for themselves and for themselves relative to previous generations? And I think that that's been a concern for a long time. Rising prices ranked higher than unemployment in that survey that I mentioned, but unemployment still stands at close to 6%, which we usually think of as like a recession level of unemployment. How concerned are economists about the unemployment rate in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, well, economists are definitely still very concerned about the unemployment rate. And there's a lot of debate about how low it could go in terms of will we get back to 3.5%, which is where we were shortly before the pandemic hit? Could we go even lower than that? Will we go only down to about 4%, which is the Fed's kind of long-run estimation of unemployment? So that's definitely something that economists are looking at, and that's, that matters for the overall health of the economy, right? Having more people working helps us produce more things. But I can completely understand why when unemployment is only affecting a fraction of our population, you know, prices are something that affects everyone, right? We're all consumers. We're all having to go to the store and buy things. And so we can all see those prices. And if we're only seeing a small percentage of people affected by unemployment, this might be one of those things where we're separating out and we're saying, okay, unemployment is a relatively low risk for me, but I am seeing that prices are going up and that's affecting me. When you and other economists want to try to understand if this will be long-term or not, what are you looking at? In some sense, we're looking at what's the state of the economy and trying to assess what is happening with both supply and demand. We're also looking at all the historical trends. These days, we're also bringing in data from all sorts of new sources. So there's the Great Billion Prices Project that Cavallo and Rigobon have been doing for some time now, where they're bringing in data from scraping the internet. And that information is really adding a lot more both granularity in terms of all of the different items that we can see the prices of, as well as you know, more timely and more frequent. So we've got a lot of information to look at, but forecasting in the economics profession is just notably hard. And in particular, forecasting about something where we really don't have a clear historical precedent. I do think that using a war as kind of an analogy here for thinking about, you know, we were at war with the virus in a lot of ways. And I think if we look at how the federal spending and how supply was really shifted in a lot of ways and the different types of goods and services in demand, I do think that the war analogy is the right one, but that's still something that we don't have on our soil a recent experience to use for an analogy for making an accurate forecast. And so I think that's why there's so much debate amongst economists as to what that pattern might look like a year or two from now. But I, I will say that the important thing is to not just look at what's happening 
on the demand side. We can't just look at what's happening from the perspective of, oh, well, there was a lot of money put into the economy. There must be inflation coming. I think that conclusion is completely missing this idea that we have also had a lot of supply disruptions. And if we can open up those supply gates, then we won't see long run impacts on inflation from higher demand. All right. Well, of course, we will see what happens, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, Galen. Tara Sinclair is a professor of economics and international affairs at the George Washington University. She's also a senior fellow at Indeed. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidegary Curtis is on audio editing and in the control room, along with our intern, Emma Riley. Benton Stevens is on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.